You see, America right now is rife with idolatry, rife with the worship of false gods. And the population, by and large, seems to have moved on from God, who granted us such blessing in this land. Will we be among those, though, who, who call our fellow citizens back to the one true God, who alone can deliver them? Will we stand in the gap for them? The psalmist moves on in verse 24 to 27 to the next sin. Unbelief. It says, Then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe His word, but grumbled in their tents. They did not listen to the voice of the Lord. Therefore He swore to them that He would cast them down in the wilderness, and that He would cast their seed among the nations, and scatter them in the lands. And this is the episode surrounding the twelve spies in Numbers 13 to 14. These spies went ahead into the promised land. You remember that? Um, After Mount Sinai, they went to the border of the promised land, and these 12 spies went in to see what they could see, and they were going to report back to the Israelites what they saw. And so God had told them that He would grant them success in going into the land and defeating the evil inhabitants that were there and taking the good land for their own. God promised them. He promised them that He would accomplish this for them. Two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua, came back with a good report and faith in their God to give what He promised them. The other ten, though, came back with a mixed and doubting message. Yeah, it's a good land, but the giants are there. The Nephilim. And we look like grasshoppers to these guys. They're so big. There's no way we can defeat them. They didn't believe. And so they discouraged the people, and they caused them to doubt and disbelieve the promises of God. And look at what the psalmist says. But they they grumbled in their tents. This is in privacy. God knows what we think in our hearts and our minds. He knows whether or not we truly trust Him. Hebrews 3.12 says this, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. In Mark 9, there's a despairing and doubting father of a demon-possessed child who got a chance to speak to Jesus. You guys remember this little episode. And he said to him, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if? If you can. All things are possible to him who believes. Now, the Israelites on the border of the promised land had a monumental task before them, but it was one in which they were promised success by Almighty God. And they bagged it because of their unbelief. I just ask you today, if there's anything that God wants wants us, brothers and sisters, probably more than anything else, it's to be believed. Do you believe God? Do you believe? It was when Abraham believed God that it was credited to him as righteousness. Have we stopped believing that that, that God loves this land and the people in it? I think back to November and the ballot initiative that was a blow to us. And I think of that amendment that passed in Ohio's constitution. And I think, did the victory that those who celebrate death that they won back in November at the ballot box. 
Did it cause us in disbelief to abandon the cause of the abolition of abortion? Or do we still believe it's possible and that God desires that? What were we saying in our hearts as we laid in the privacy of our tents in those moments? Were we overwhelmed with doubt and despair? Or do we believe yet still that God can restore? The psalmist moves on to the next sin, the sixth one, verses 28 to 31. And this is the sin of apostasy. It says, They joined themselves also to Baal Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their deeds, and the plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and interposed. And so the plague was stayed, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness to all generations forever. So this is the account of Numbers chapter 25. And that's that episode in Israel's history where that weird sorcerer prophet guy named Balaam who talked to his donkey, he was hired by the king of Moab. You remember this? He was hired to curse Israel. But he couldn't curse them because God prevented it. God said, you can't curse them. So instead of calling a curse down upon the people, Balaam counseled the Moabites to send their beautiful and seductive daughters to the Israelite camp. It was the old honeypot trap. And it's so effective. It works still to this day. It worked in that instance. The young men of Israel, before you knew it, were engaging in inappropriate sexual relationships with these women and eventually even engaged in their pagan practices, offering sacrifices to the dead, ignoring God's explicit commands for purity and singular devotion to Him. And God again sent a plague for punishment. And that plague was not lifted until the man Phineas, which was the grandson of Aaron, rose up with zeal for God's honor and glory. And he slew two flagrant and brazen perverts, really, who were committing wickedness right in the midst of the camp. But God commended Phineas's decisive action, and he blessed Phineas for generations. God's wrath was terminated because of Phineas's decisive action, and that judgment plague was lifted because of what he did. The seventh sin that the psalmist mentions in verses 32 to 33 is insurrection. It says, They also provoked him to wrath at the waters of Meribah, so that it went hard with Moses on their account, because they were rebellious against his spirit. So, oh, he spoke rashly with his lips, it says, to finish out verse 33. So these verses point us back to Numbers 20 and Exodus 17. This is the episode where Moses himself stumbled so that his eventual entry into the promised land was prevented. It was at Meribah that the Israelites became so thirsty that they rose up and pressured Moses so much that he he feared for his life. And you can read this in Exodus 17, verses 3 to 4. It says, But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses, and, and they said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt? Again, they're questioning Moses. Why have you brought us up from Egypt? To kill us and our children, and our livestock with thirst. So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. So these people were on the verge of a riotous mob that was going to you know, uh, commit insurrection and overthrow their leader. In some ways, this was similar to Korah's rebellion, but here the people, they don't have a stated ringleader, but they were close to being whipped up into this angry mob and killing Moses. And you know, desperate times certainly can foment civil unrest. 
But that generation that wandered in the wilderness for 40 years were the ones who committed all seven of these acts of wickedness that the psalmist confesses, all seven that we've looked at so far. They were the ones guilty of rebellion, of discontent and ingratitude, of jealousy, of idolatry, of unbelief, of apostasy, and even insurrection, almost insurrection. That generation was not permitted to enter the promised land. You remember this. They were not permitted to go in except for faithful Joshua and faithful Caleb. They were allowed to go. But only that generation's children and grandchildren were allowed to enter the promised land because their parents had been so disobedient. So the next and the last sin in Psalm 106 is the one committed by those who knew and grew up in the blessing of the promised land. You see, their, their fathers in previous generations had become faithful again, and they entered into the promised land, and they experienced the, the, the fulfilled promise of God in receiving that land and expelling many of the people that were there. And these, this generation grew in sinfulness as well, and they eventually turned on God as well in the promised land itself. And the sin that they committed in verses 34 to 39 is the sin of accommodation. Accommodation. Here's what it says in verses 34 to 39. It says, They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. And they shed innocent blood the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with the blood. Thus they became unclean in their practices and played the harlot in their deeds. So the people who entered the promised land did not complete the conquest that God had given them. And they left remnants and reminders of the evil that had once inhabited and dominated that land. And the history of the Israelites in the promised land is one of a progressive mingling and an adopting of of practices of the idol-worshiping neighbors that they left. And time and again, they forgot their God and they paid attention to these more alluring and seductive rituals that their pagan neighbors taught them. Rituals that were filled with sexual perversion and occult fertility practices, pornographic material. Of course, these things had an appeal. They were overwhelmingly tempting to the people. They were ensnared by the sensuality of these things. These things that they saw because they accommodated the people and the practices rather than destroying them as the Lord had commanded. Romans 13, verses 13 to 14 says, Let us behave properly as in the day, not carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. This is precisely what the Israelites did. They provided or they, they made provision for they accom- an accommodating place in their society for these people and practices that God said to have nothing to do with. 
And as Christians, I ask, in our day, in this society, do we do the same thing? Do we leave a little room for a remnant of sinful fleshly lust to continue to dwell in our hearts? Do we allow a little into our homes and families and the things that we allow ourselves to be entertained by and influenced by? Do we find ourselves saying things like, it's just the Super Bowl halftime show? Or, there's only one sex scene in that movie, right? Or, fill in the blank. There's any number of ways that we excuse a little attention given here and a little attention given there to things that dishonor our Lord. But look at the depth of the trouble that this accommodation and tolerance of a little evil here and a little evil there, how it brought that upon the people of Israel, the trouble that it brought upon them. It says they even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. So Jeremiah 32, verse 35, again, at the end of Israel's history, right before they were taken into captivity into Babylon, Jeremiah says this, they built the high places of Baal that are in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Molech, which I had not commanded them, nor had it entered my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. So for Israel, what was once an unthinkable level of depravity and evil to the people but became a commonplace occurrence. And many people just went about their normal everyday lives as if nothing was wrong or out of place. But there was something wrong and out of place. Things had decayed to a staggering level. What do you think is going on in our own country, in our states, in our cities, in towns today, when we accommodate and tolerate the evil of abortion? Do you think that the sanitized words that we use for butchering babies, the word abortion, do you think it's any different than the sacrificing of our sons and daughters? Do you think the sophisticated reasons that we use to excuse killing unborn babies is just, as justified in some instances, do you think that makes the demons any less happy? than it did when Israel sacrificed their sons and daughters. I mean, after all, whether you sacrifice the child to a statue of Molech or, or you sacrifice the child to a, the idol of self-obsessed comfort to avoid difficulty and hardship in life, it doesn't m- matter one bit to Satan and his minions. The demons howl in delight at the death of any innocent child by the hands of those who have forgotten who the one true God is. Abortion is nothing less than child sacrifice. And America is polluted with the blood of the innocents. Shed so that this generation can feel self-righteous because they safeguarded a woman's right to choose. But who will stand in the breach and speak for the innocents who have no say and they have no voice? Will you? Will you stand up and speak out for them? Will you do what it takes to help them? 
Notice the mention of harlotry or prostitution in verse 39. This accompanies the mention of child sacrifice and the demonic in verses 37 and 38. And these three always go together. A culture that experiences a sexual revolution and does not repent will awaken to a world that's enamored and infatuated with the demonic and which plays fast and loose with life. The demons always lure their prey with sexual perversion and they end up causing them to annihilate themselves. And this toxic soup of perversion, the demonic, child sacrifice, it it marked the death of the once great civilization that Israel knew when they were faithful to their God. It's the same concoction that, that marks the death of many civilizations throughout history. And it's the exact same cultural brew that marks our own society today. Perversion. The demonic. Sacrifice of the innocent. They're all here. They're all present. This depth of decadence is the final straw before God intervenes in judgment. And this is where we arrive at in the Psalm 106, verses 40 to 43. It's God's judgment. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against His people, and He abhorred His inheritance. Then He gave them into the hand of the nations, and those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were subdued under their power. Many times He would deliver them. They, however, were rebellious in their counsel. And so sank down in their iniquity. There's that slippery slope again. God's patience with a decadent culture has an expiration date. God is a God of anger toward sin. He abhors it. We'd prefer not mention this about God, that He punishes and condemns, that His wrath and His anger are described as a fire that is kindled and that consumes We don't want to mention this about God, but it's in His Word. We need to wrestle with the reality of God's anger towards sin. And I want you to notice the reversal of God's treatment toward His people and the fortune that they experience in this life. After the family of Jacob spent many years in Egypt, they grew into a people and a nation, right? It started off with just 70 people who went there during a famine, but before, by the time of the Exodus, they were over a million strong. It was a people and a nation. And in the beginning of God's dealing with them as a nation, it says back in verse 10, so he saved them from the hand of the one who hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. Now look what it says in verse 41. There's a reversal. Then he gave them into the hand of the nations and those who hated them ruled over them. So the God who saved is the same God who gave them over to those who hated them. And I ask, why would a God of great loving kindness do such a thing? What's well, because God's punishments fit the crime. God's justice is a poetic justice. You see, they were given into the hands that hated them because they as a people had despised their God who had saved them by His own hand. In effect, God was saying, you don't like my hands, the the ones that rescued you, fine. How about living under the oppression of these other hands? You seem to like their gods an awful lot, after all. Go serve them. 
and see how you like it. And thus, Israel experienced collapse. They experienced captivity. They were conquered. And this was all done to open their eyes to the depth of their sin and rebellion so that they might be finally brought to a broken, godly sorrow for their sin and to repentance. I shudder to think if God's dealing with Israel could be a a template for how He may deal with our own nation. What is on the horizon for America? Will there be a nation that God raises up in judgment upon us that brings us to despair and oppression? Will there be hands that hate us who rule over us? I find it odd that we already seem to be governed by the hands of people who hate our country in a lot of ways. I mean, I I think of some of the, the, the political leadership now and I think what more could be done to diminish us as a nation or humiliate us as a nation or impoverish us or weaken us by, you know, what other nation could do more than what our own leaders are doing? Our, our current crop of corrupt political leaders, they've already done so much. I don't believe I really want to know the answer to that question if there's a, if there's a nation that's going to rise up to overthrow us because I, I fear things could get much worse for us. But to get our attention and draw us back to himself, God may have to bring this nation to the point of deep distress. Otherwise, we may not see the need to cry out to Him. But before that judgment falls, in the meantime, I want to continue to preach to those who are willing to listen that God is willing to forgive and restore. If we will turn to Him through His Son in confession and repentance, in the meantime, all of us, all of us should be willing to do the same, to stand in the breach for the sake of our countrymen. Because this psalm does not end in despair. Even though it does bring God's judgment into view in the very end, toward the very end, the psalm is riddled with the history of Israel's sin. But it concludes with a celebration of Israel's faithful God. Verses 44 to 46. Nevertheless, God looked upon their distress when He heard their cry. And He remembered His covenant for their sake. And he relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness. He also made them objects of compassion in the presence of all their captors. You see, God is a God who hears cries of distress directed toward him. God is a God who remembers his covenants. He is a promise-keeping God. God is a God who relents from judgment when his people repent of their sins. He is all of these things because He is a God of great loving kindness. He is a God who not only has hands that rescue from the hands of those who hate us, He's a God who allows His own hands to be oppressively pierced so that the oppression of the demonic can no longer hold sway over those who trust in Him. The New Testament shows us even further that He is a God that is compassionate. God is a willingly sacrificial, pure and innocent Son who gave Himself and spilled His own blood so that the blood of no other would have to be shed to atone for the guilt of their sin. I think of that word nevertheless and I think, what a great word. 
in the face of unspeakable evil and being left with no recourse but to punish his people, God is nevertheless good. His loving kindness is nevertheless. It's never lessened. It is never diminished in the slightest. He is a God of great loving kindness. And I would just say today, if you don't know this God, would you stay and ask some questions and have some conversations with folks so that we can introduce you to this God more formally? He's a God of unfathomable loving kindness. He's a God who forgives even a sin like abortion. And if this has affected you in some way, He is a God who stands ready to forgive those who confess their sins and repent and turn to Him. He's a God of great, unfathomable, loving kindness. If you've heard this though today and you understand what we're talking about and you have not bowed your head to this God and confessed your own sin to Him, would you do that today? Will you trust in the blood of His sinless Son who willingly died so that your sin may be forgiven and forgotten? and so that you may live eternally. As it pertains, though, to tolerance, tolerance toward the grave injustice of abortion that we deal with especially today, if this describes you, will you repent of your prayerlessness and your silence on this issue? Will you become one who stands in the breach for your countrymen so that they may repent and that God may relent? Let's close now with a a word of prayer just taken directly from the final prayer here in Psalm 106. Save us, O Yahweh, our God. Save our nation from our sins. Save our nation, Lord, from the sin and the stain of abortion. Save our nation from the injustice that it represents, Lord Jesus. Rescue the innocents, Lord, who are in danger. Gather us from among the nations. Preserve us as your people. Gather us together week after week to give thanks to your holy name and to glory in your praise. Lord, may America bless the Lord, the God of Israel, and turn from all the idols that we have turned to as we've turned away from you. Lord, that we would remember the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Lord Jesus, and that we would remember him from everlasting to everlasting. And all the people said, Amen. Praise the Lord. Stand with us as we sing. Love could remember no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, He counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is Would wait as we constantly roam 
What Father so tender is calling us home He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more Praise the Lord, His mercy is of kindness He lavished on us. Our blood was the payment, His life was the cost. We stood in the dead we could never afford. Our sins, they are Stay standing for the benediction. May the God of everlasting kindness, Jesus our Lord and our God, save us. May you as his people in the presence of your fellow citizens who don't acknowledge him yet, give thanks to his holy name and glory in praising him. May he be blessed from everlasting to everlasting. And when our generation finishes its course, may the next generation after us bless his name still. Let all of God's people say hallelujah. Hallelujah. And amen. Depart in his peace.